At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help or PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to trauma recovery is clear. Today we have Richard Pikarczyk Vaca. He is a military veteran and my favorite kind of veteran. All infantry people love the engineers. So what the combat engineers do is they defuse bombs, landmines, that kind of thing. So they can clear it up so that people in the infantry, like what I was, can do their jobs without exploding, which is really good. Exploding is bad. I don't want to go boom. So Richard Pikarczyk Vaca uh, served with the engineers and now is a psychotherapist, a registered psychotherapist out of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And he's got a couple of different firms. So happy to have him on the show talking about that. So thank you for tuning in. This is Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast. In three, two, one. And today on the show, we have Richard Pikarczyk Vaca, otherwise known as Richard Alphabet or Richard P10. Richard, thanks for being here, man. Thank you very much, Mark. I do appreciate it. You are a partner in Romero Psychotherapy and a partner in, uh, so Romero Psychotherapy and Renova. You like that R sound. At Renova Recovery and, and Treatment Center. Tell me about Romero, Romero Psychotherapy. So Romero Psychotherapy, it's, a, it's a, an outpatient practice. So I, I, I partnered with, uh, with Diana Romero uh, in the practice. Uh, we started working together, and then um, uh, we brought sort of, again, different sort of uh, specialties, uh, specialties in. Uh, a lot of Diana's focus on, say, like even like addictions and things like that, a little bit more of mine with trauma and things like that. Um, we found, we, again, we worked really well together. And again, the, the, the goal was to sort of uh, be able to expand our services, expand um, uh, the practice and offer more, um, more to the community. Uh, again, like I said, it's, it's an outpatient um, uh, practice. So people come in either for individual um, sessions, couple sessions, family sessions, uh, we're going to be starting uh, group sessions there uh, as well. And we see a range of, um, of different um, different presentations, different difficulties people are facing, whether it be, say, again, trauma, um, addictions. With, with addictions, there's always the addiction and the concurrent disorder. The, the addiction is, is, is going to be sort of the aftermath, usually, of, say, uh, trauma. Uh, and we're also looking at, like, anxiety, depression, um, um, OCD, um, various different, uh, various different difficulties people are facing. So do you agree that the root of all or most addictions is trauma? I would say that, um, for the addiction, the addiction, um, is a, is a blunting component, right? So, you know, people don't, I, I haven't heard of anybody ever sort of waking up say Wednesday morning and say, you know what, I'm going to get addicted to cocaine today, right? The, the addiction blunts something, mm-hmm. Right. Um, the addiction is, say, um, helping somebody cope. Right. Uh, the addiction, unfortunately, you can look at it this way. The addiction kind of makes sense. Right. So you're trying to blunt, say, traumatic memories. You're trying to, say, um, get through a night's sleep. Right. Without some of those nightmares. Right. And you're finding, you know, if I intoxicate myself, um, I can actually get, you know, through the night. Right. The the addiction is incredibly problematic, not just for the individual, but say, their social uh, relationships, right? But you can see, say, why the person may engage in the um, in the addiction. Again, 
as a um, as a problematic coping mechanism for whatever it is that they're facing, whether it be anxiety, depression. Um, a lot of the people I've spoken with, um, there there is a significant um, uh, trauma history. It says on your LinkedIn here, treatment and advocacy for military veterans and first responders. So tell me about advocacy. So advocacy, um, we try to, again, bring a lot of awareness to, say, uh, the military population, uh, veteran population, first responder um, communities, and sort of bring awareness that um, uh, the, the, this, the stigma that, say, again, you know, uh, a lot of people say, you know, we're, we're doing better. There's not as much stigma, stigma with, say, mental health as there was, say, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But it's, it's still there. Um, one of the, the problems that I think a lot of people, again, in the first responder community, which I'm going to include military and, um, and veteran communities in there as well, is um, that ability to want to help but be kind of more reluctant to ask um, for help, Right there's sometimes that sort of association with mental health as kind of, you know, um, weakness and, and things like that. So trying to sort of get, um, get some of that information out there that again, um, uh, a lot of these stigmas are, are problematic. They're, they're actually not, they're not helpful, right. For one, uh, in terms of say, uh, treating whatever difficulties that you're, that you're facing. And also in terms of even say, um, workshops that we offer, uh, in terms of say workshops on grief or couples counseling and 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 things like that uh, as well, and again, part of that education um, is also educating the the community. So, uh, for instance, say at our at our practice, um, we do hire a lot of um, a lot of veterans, and um, one thing that I oftentimes um, tell a lot of say business owners is um, a lot of business owners are pretty reluctant, uh, pretty ignorant about a lot of the transferable skills that say a lot of veterans can bring outside of service, a lot of the education that you get during service time. So say promoting a lot of, um, a lot of members as they're, they're releasing uh, from service, you know, promoting them in, in terms of say um, looking for um, other job placements and, and things like that, working with other sort of communities as well in order to um, either uh, re-educate or find um, uh, different vocational uh, employment for them. I'd like to talk to you about uh, stigma and, the public misconceptions of what a mental injury is or mental illness. Uh, last night, my wife and I were watching Designated Survivor, and there's an episode where uh, the, the uh, Kiefer Sutherland is playing the the interim president, and he lost his wife. And of course, that's that's a pretty big deal. And on the urging of everybody else, he sought uh, uh, the help of a psychiatrist. Pretty natural response, I would think, with the sudden loss of of your spouse, and how it was played in in the show was, oh, we've got to hide this. We can't let anybody know. And the counselor or the um, psychiatrist's computer was hacked, and all the personal notes, uh, voice notes, um, talking about this was made public. And so because of that, uh, the response in the show was, oh, uh, this means that if you have PTSD, that was the big concern. Oh, my God, then you can't be president if you have PTSD. You are unfit now, if that's the case. And they were really running away from these diagnoses. Uh, diagnoses. 
Now, uh, with that, could you break down for me everything that uh, they're doing wrong and the misconceptions? Because that is, there's still a lot of that out there, unfortunately, mm-hmm. where people think PTSD equals you're a danger. Or, matter of fact, that was a comment made uh, at Homes for Heroes. Some lady said, wait a second, wait a second. There's this uh, tiny home village for for veterans here with PTSD? Yes. Oh, but there's a playground just a couple miles away. Yeah, that's no. that's a danger to the children. So with those two e- examples of what we're bombarded with, with misconceptions, uh, if you could speak to that, please. Well, and, you know, I, it's, it's troubling to, to hear that example. Um, unfortunately, it's troubling also because I'm, I'm not really um, surprised. I mean, I've, I've heard it um, communicated to me. I've heard it um, from, from friends and, and things like that as well, that uh, there's this, there's this um, interesting kind of navigation that I think a lot of military members and veterans uh, find themselves in where there are these uh, protectors of the community, protectors of the nation, again, national service and things like that. But then all of a sudden when they come out of service, they're now this danger to the public, Right. Um, and it's, it's incredibly, um, problematic because I think one of the things that oftentimes we find in say the news and things like that is say, um, you know, maybe, uh, again, a veteran gets kind of, uh, pushed to the edge, uh, you know, commits a, a violent act or things like that. And, you know, we have all these questions about like, you know, the, the danger of mentally unstable veterans and, and things like that, because of course, um, I'm sure as you, you, you know, very well, Mark, uh, if you do something wrong, it's not going to say, um, you know, Mark resident of this town or whatever, you know, committed this crime. They'll say, you know, Mark veteran of the Canadian armed forces or member of the Canadian armed forces. So, you know, public already kind of tunes in to, to that. Um, and I think we kind of get, you know, the public kind of gets lost in that and thinking to themselves like, Oh, we've got all these rambles on the loose. Right. Um, But if you look, you know, honestly at, again, you know, presentations that come in just to our clinic, for instance, right? Or if you look at, say, um, statistics, when you look at, say, um, unfortunately, uh, again, Veteran Veteran Affairs, you know, released uh, suicide statistics and things like that, you find um, veterans are a lot more likely to harm themselves um, than than harm uh, somebody else. Um, You're no more at risk with, say, um, a veteran than with, say, anybody else uh, in the public. I'd say, actually, in fact, with a lot of, again, the, the first responder community, military community, veteran community, um, we've been sort of trained to help. If anything, I think you're going to more likely find a veteran's going to um, step up and, and give you a hand versus, um, you know, uh, beat you to death or anything like that. You know, it's just bad guys that we beat to death. <laughs> so if you're not a bad guy you're you're good to go it's um it really is unfortunate that there, there's a seg- segment of the population that holds us in regard and not asking them to but it's nice that they do i appreciate it I'm not saying that they should just they do and that's kind of nice and then there's this other segment that doesn't understand whatsoever they don't understand the sacrifice of service and they're like why do we have a veterans way like why do we have roads uh called veterans way and veterans road and veterans boulevard uh what's the big deal these are people that'll 
never wear a poppy or show up to a Remembrance Day ceremony because they can't connect the how it affects their own personal life. They just they don't see the link. It's because they, mm-hmm. they're geocentric and they live in a bubble called Canada and it's like Whoville. Nothing bad ever happens here. You know, not really. And mm-hmm. uh, that's what kind of throws them off because they, they, they've never had their door kicked in or been shot at and needed some somebody like us <laughs> that shows up and helps them out. Or, uh, I mean, you're an engineer for God's sakes. Uh, they can't imagine uh, being at an intersection going, I don't know if I should drive down that road or not because it might have landmines in it. That's not something that's ever crossed their mind in their entire life. And they, it's, it's just too foreign for them. So they can't see it. Well, and I, I think it's, it's kind of, um, you know, uh, we're, we're sort of victims of our own um, success, victims of our own safety. Um, you know, I, I would say Canada, uh, and sure, maybe I'm being a little bit biased. I think Canada is one of the, the greatest countries you can live in. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes we may take certain things um, for granted here. Um, you know, I were talking a little bit um, uh, before, you know, my, I've got um, uh, Polish heritage and everything like that. Um, so I'm the, the first in my family um, in the Canadian military, but, you know, we got a long history um, in, in Poland and everything like that. And I mean, if you look at, say, um, you know, what, say my grandparents, you know, had gone through, you know, with the Nazis and then later the Soviets and everything like that. Um, when you hear a lot of those stories, you start to think like, wow, like, you know, we are like really, really um, lucky here compared to say what they went through. And, and again, what people are even going through in other, um, other areas of the world today. Tell me what you think has to happen to start reducing stigma. I think there has to be a lot more public um, awareness, uh, much more public awareness, not just in mental health, say not only to say uh, reduce the stigma of mental health of, of anyone seeking um, uh, treatment for mental health. But I think when we, when we look at say, again, um, veteran populations uh, or again, military Police, like I said before, first responder communities, I'm just going to say, is, is pretty much across the board um, in terms of, say, police, uh, firefighters, military veterans, um, that um, uh, these are people who, again, um, serve our community, serve our nation. Um, these, these people are not um, a threat. And I think what we need to also understand is, say, when we're looking at um, uh, military members reintegrating into the civilian population, right, people who voluntarily released, maybe medically released um, from service, um, that these people are not a danger uh, to society, right? Um, They're not, again, they're not going to, like, say, pull a Rambo first blood and, you um, you know, decimate a town or anything like that. Um, And... One thing I would also look at is well, say, we could if we really, say, really wanted to. I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 well, you know, it's sometimes some of those uh, aggressive thoughts. But hey, you know what? We 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 keep might imagine it. <laughs> might might imagine it every now and then. We're not actually going to do it. Uh, well, you know, it, it was funny actually. You you were mentioning sort of what um uh, what we do at the the um, the practice. Uh, one of the areas I specialize in is uh, anger management, right? Uh, so uh, I, I sometimes find uh, uh, the more you can say relate uh, to a topic, say me having dealt with my own um, uh, past anger, it makes it easier to 
to to help um, others because it's, it's, it's it feels a little bit easier um, to uh, you know sort of understand uh, that experience. Uh, but going back to your question, I think in terms of say even reducing stigma is again when it comes to reintegration, one thing that um, I think the military is very good at is um, uh, bringing troops into the military, bringing recruits into the military, um, teaching ethos and things like that. One thing that the military has gotten better at, but I think is still terrible at, is understanding that, you know, eventually we all leave service. We're, we either release, um, we either, or we, we die, one or the other. We, but we eventually leave service, right? And I think for a lot of members coming um, out of service and then coming to the civilian world, I think a lot of people have this conception of, say, untrained labor. Either we're dangerous or we're stupid. Um, I think that's another thing that we really have to sort of address when it comes to, say, um, public per- perception of, um, of, again, first responder communities, uh, especially, say, veteran communities, and reducing, um, reducing stigma. We talked about Renova. We, we mm-hmm. talked about Romero for sure. Did we talk about Renova as well? Um, I think we talked about Renova in the in the past. You and I just um, off air. Um, if you'd like me to tell you a little bit about um, Renova on air, I sure would. I'm sorry. Yes, please. Oh, excellent. So, um, with Renova, Renova is um, is an inpatient um, practice that that Diane and I also um, uh, own and direct. So. We, we not only um, the, own the, the, two, the two practices, but we also provide um, psychotherapy uh, as well. But at Renova, Renova is, uh, as I said, an inpatient. Um, with Renova, we, we focus more on addictions and uh, concurrent disorders. Uh, and we, we look um, only at, um, again, um, um, uh, male residents, right? Uh, there's oftentimes uh, problematic features with, say, having uh, co-ed facilities, uh, so we have uh, the facility just um, for um, for male residents. Um, it's a, a six-bedroom facility, so we try to focus um, uh, as much sort of attention on, say, each resident instead of, say, having, like, say, 30 people, uh, say, in one room for, say, group therapy or, or anything like that. Um, all the bedrooms have, say, again, like, their own bathrooms and everything like that. Um, and as I said, addictions and concurrent disorders, because the way that we see um, addictions is the addiction doesn't occur in isolation. There's, there's always something that's, um, again, um, promoting that uh, uh, addiction, encouraging that addiction to, to be present, right? Tell me, tell me about moral injury and how that is an amplifier for PTSD. So with the, the moral injuries... One way that I, I oftentimes look at, say, uh, trauma, uh, trauma, even even any event. So every day we we navigate our lives, um, interpreting and evaluating things, right? So we evaluate an event, and that allows meaning making to occur, right? So if I walk down the street and my neighbor gives me the finger, I need to evaluate that. Is he is he joking? Like, do I know this guy? Is he flipping me off? I need to evaluate what's what's going on so I can sort of um, respond, right? Um, so it's very important to understand how someone perceives a situation, right? Um, so we have a tendency to focus on certain aspects of whatever that interaction may be, right? So if, say, um, my neighbor gives me the finger, 
I might say, well, he's just an asshole. Or I might think to myself like, oh, it's proof that, you know, I'm a piece of shit or something like that, right? We're focusing, say, on different aspects of that event. So the problem with, um, with trauma, trauma is a, a fantastic teacher, right? So we learn from trauma, right? So um, trauma, I oftentimes tell people, it's not so much the visceral experience of the, of the event, but it's the self-referential or the associative features of it, right? So self-referential might be, say, um, uh, the guilt or the shame or things like that. Um, that's say oftentimes the, the evaluative um, uh, component of say trauma is sort of that idea that say, well, you know, I should have done this or I could have done this. Say if we had gotten here sooner, these people would have lived or things like that. Or again, associative features where say um, when I've spoken to, um, uh, to, to serving members or veterans or again, uh, police officers where say um, they've seen um, uh, dead children, right? And then it affects them because it becomes associative. They sort of begin to sort of um, see their own children, um, you know, as dead and things like that. And then that, what happens is the problem um, with, um, with the trauma is that say when we're exposed to things uh, that are similar in some way, again, like say, um, seeing your own child or say driving over um, a culvert, right? It triggers re-experiencing of that trauma, right? And it's also relearning of those problematic evaluations and behaviors associated with the trauma, right? So with the moral injuries, when we're thinking about say that shame, that guilt or things like that, a lot of that comes in, comes into play, right? So say for instance, when I've uh, uh, spoken to, to, to veterans and um, in, in this regard, for this example, um, my work with, um, with Dan is, is, is really essential because I, I like to focus a lot on the trauma. Dan oftentimes can bring in that sort of spiritual component, which I oftentimes find is, is, is quite beneficial when we're, when we're looking at moral injuries. When, say, you have somebody who, say, um, you know, is a police officer or a military member or somebody like that who, say, um, had to shoot, shoot somebody, for instance, Right. And then there's kind of like that they're, they're in that bind where they're kind of like, well, you know um, I was doing this to say, you know, protect my team. I was doing this because, you know, this, this person was shooting back at us or things like that, but you know, Oh my God, I killed somebody. Right. And um, if, especially coming from say a religious perspective, they might say, well, you know, thou shall not kill and things like that. So am I going to go to hell now? Um, and things like that. So there's uh, oftentimes again with this, this, this trauma, right we can take this episodic event and see what are the ramifications going forward with this, right? In episode two or three, I think I uh, just kind of scribbled it out and I tried to explain in layman's terms what you're talking about. And I broke it down into four different quadrants for PTSD, four, four factors with and without moral injury and how I explained it is without moral injury is like an act of God. Yeah, mm-hmm. you saw somebody killed, but it was they were hit by lightning uh, or a tree fell on them. So yeah, it was gross and it was bad and it was unfortunate, but evil wasn't involved. Mm-hmm. And But when there's malevolence involved, and uh, some of the things that I witnessed in Croatia, it wasn't because of the horrific gory thing that i saw it's was the intent be that had to be there to create that horrible gory thing 
It mm. was the it was the hate and malevolence that had to exist for that to happen. That's that's what haunts you. It's mm. not the thing. It's not the bombs and the bullets. Uh, yeah. It's it's the intent behind it. That mm-hmm. um, now that's. Would you agree that it's a lot harder to treat a trauma injury when you compare uh, an act of God, like you just witnessed something really horrible, as opposed to evil was involved to create that something horrible? Uh, I think uh, the situation always dictates, right? Mm. Um, like, say, for instance, oftentimes what um, what I what I oftentimes see with with trauma is is, uh, is a history um, as well. You know, we're usually looking at say uh, complex PTSD and things like that, right? So, oftentimes, say um, when we've worked with say uh, um, indigenous communities. So, I work a lot with say even um, um, uh, criminal offenders or probation and things like that. And oftentimes you'll see like a history of say um, uh, child abuse. And I, I don't mean like, you know, uh, you know, my, my dad smacked my bum or anything like that. I mean like, you know, this, this kid was like chained to a radiator for like a week or something like that. Like, I mean, like, you know, you're, you're talking about like say horrific um, um, childhood be, be, trauma. Be, be, beyond like imagination. Well, and that's exactly it. Right. And then, then this one event occurs, right. This, this one episode, right. That's, that's, uh, that comes after this whole history, right? So I think it's, it's kind of sometimes hard to, to piece apart, say, the moral injury and say that, um, you know, that, that act of God, like you were saying, right? Um, because sometimes, again, like I'll, I'll speak with, um, uh, with people who are having a really tough time because they're saying, well, I'm angry at God. I feel like I, I didn't have any, I had no control over this, this trauma, uh, but how could God let something like this happen? Or, or even if people are, say, um, atheist, people will, pe- people will oftentimes almost talk about like a, almost like a godlike figure, right? That say, well, um, whether they want to call it fate, luck, whatever the case may be, how could this injustice happen or things like that, whether it was out of their control um, or in their control? Well, they say there, there are no atheists in a foxhole. But, uh, that there, there could be something to that. You got to pray to something when you're, when you're in it. But, um, moral injury is such a bugger, uh, in, within the peer support groups, uh, with the therapy that I've gone through over the last uh, years, the moral injury, injury component is always the toughest, um, and then you see it carried on into your civilian life. So when you see an, an injustice, you're so sensitive to it. Mm-hmm. Um, a bully, anybody that uh, is trying to assert themselves over on on somebody else, any kind of injustice like that, and things that would just be a little bit annoying to a healthy person. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of us that uh, that used to have a rifle and could do something about it. Yeah. Um, and now I don't have that rifle. At least I can't carry it in public. <laughs> you know, I don't have a badge. I don't have a gun, and I don't have the authority to to stop bad things like that when they're happening. And it just it drives you nuts. And that's where a lot of the road rage comes from, because you mm-hmm. you feel uh, you perceive this um, personalized injustice for a moment, and yeah. then you're like, oh, you have this, <laughs> this really big reaction. 
thank God I'm, I, I don't do that anymore. I don't road rage. I just go, huh, look, an idiot. <laughs> and, that, and I just leave it at that. And I smile and wave. But for years, that was, that was difficult. But see, like, uh, Mark, you, I think you, you hit it right there. It's that, of, that evaluative component, right? It's I've evaluated this as, say, wrong. And it's, it's kind of like, again, um, what, what makes the moral injuries um, difficult to sort of parse from, say, the trauma, for instance, right? Like, um, I remember um, uh, talking with, um, with, uh, with, uh, with actually a, a friend of mine. This, this, wasn't a, this wasn't a client I was treating. And uh, they were telling me about, um, say, um, uh, they, were on an, they were on an EROC tour, uh, so emergency road obstacle clearance. So they were basically looking for, for IEDs. And um, this um, uh, infantry unit, I, I don't know if they were the, if it was the Van Dues or, or, or who it was that, that, that need to cross this, this road. And this, this road had a history of, of having IEDs and, and had been hit um, numerous times, right? And, um, you know, they were saying, like, you know, we haven't cleared the road yet. And, um, you know, you, we're, we're telling you, like, you should not push this convoy through, right? And, um this CEO or whoever was, uh, was directing this, um, uh, this convoy was saying like, well, no, we've got this timing. We got to meet, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And they were saying like, look, this, this road has again a history of being hit and everything like that. This isn't a good di- good idea. So long story short, they, the, the unit basically said, you know, get the hell out of the way. Convoy went through ID went off. And I think, um, three troops died. Right. Um, and it's, it's kind of, again, it's not so much the idea. It's not so much seeing it go off. It's not so much any of that. It's say that sense of maybe again, betrayal, right? That, that leadership that was in place, that was actually a lack of leadership, right? It was kind of that idea that say, well, if you could have just waited, if you could have just listened to what I said, um, maybe these guys wouldn't have. It's like a, it's like a parental betrayal, you know, Mm -hmm. because, because here's the people that are supposed to, supposed to tell us what to do and we're supposed to be able to trust their judgment you know, you're supposed to have my back and yeah. not not be forcing us to do things that we knew and we warned you that this would happen and, and then it happened you know yeah. it's also um the number one human emotional need is affirmation and it's the exact opposite of affirmation i don't even know what the what you would call it when you're just completely uh dismissed and uh invalidating you know, yeah. incredibly invalidating, um, causing death. It yeah. just, uh, it would be so difficult and, and the anger that would come from that. And that's, um, unfortunately, most people, especially if they've been deployed, have stories like that. Mm-hmm. We all have stories like that. And, and that's so difficult to to translate to those that um, have less than a little bit of empathy for the veteran first responder community. I think you're exactly right. And, and I think, you know, one of the problems too is say, you know, when, when, when you were asking me about like, say, how can we reduce stigma, for instance, mm-hmm. right? I think one of the things that makes stigma also hard to um, hard, hard for us to reduce is that say, when we want to talk about um, trauma, uh, talk about really any kind of almost emotion, right? When you want to talk about the, the positive emotions, like say happiness or things like that, or you want to talk about the ones like say um, anger, fear, um, terror, and things like that, um, they're, they're, they're 
there are no words, right? Um, for say your experiences, right, on deployment and things like that. Uh, for horrors that say um, you've experienced, right? There, there are no words that really accurately describe that that experience, right? So then, I think it's difficult for many people to sort of begin to even try to relate if there if there is you know there's 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 kind of nothing they can base it off of right yeah. where they've, they've they haven't felt that kind of fear they haven't felt that kind of helplessness um i think it becomes very hard to interpret because um again there there aren't there aren't words for it that's part of the bond I feel with uh, the the veteran and first responder community, and that's the power of peer support, because mm-hmm. you are with culturally competent people. They have been through something big, and they get it. And they also know that other people can't get it. They can respect, but they can't. You can't understand unless you've done it. It's like um, I, I like to use the example of skydiving. I've got 24 jumps and it's pretty cool, but you can't describe it. You know, it's like trying to explain an orgasm. You you can't explain it. You kind of just got to go do it for yourself, you know, and uh, uh, you you can't explain experiences like that. It's, um, but once you've had one and somebody else has had an experience like that, then you're kind of in the club. Well, and I would agree with you, right? I, I mean, one thing that I have found um, extremely helpful in, say, in the clinic for me when I'm, again, working with, um, with first responders and, again, military and, and, and veterans as well, is, uh, and I've, I've, I've spoken at um, uh, research conferences uh, as well when I've, when I've described sort of um, basically what is it like for, say, a veteran to treat other, other veterans, right? And, again, like you said, it's, it's kind of that cultural competency, right? Let's like, say, for, for instance, right? If we want to look at hypervigilance, right? Let's say one of um, uh, one of the criteria for, say, PTSD and things like that, right? Um, if you're able to sort of contextualize, say that that criteria, right? For instance, like say um, uh, um, uh, that that risk response, right? That 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 appraisal of risk, right? So um, if you can co-construct the meaning of what hypervigilance means to this person, which basically is situational awareness, right? Um, it's easier to deliver treatment, right? It's, it's easier to, again, co-construct that meaning that's essential in treatment, right? Because, for instance, one of the things that, you know, they'll, they'll tell me is they'll, they'll describe this, um, this hypervigilance, right? And I'll say, like, you know, it, it sounds like you're really situationally aware, right? And it's kind of like a key word for them that kind of pops up. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. And I'll say, you know what, that's, that's an essential skill that you have that most people don't have most people outside of service don't have and that skill kept you alive overseas right um if you if you didn't have this skill overseas um you know what you you probably you you know what you would have risked your own life and you would have risked the lives of everybody else around you as well like what what an amazing skill you have it's kind of a superpower really i'm sorry it's kind of a superpower well you know and, and you can definitely look at it that way right but the but then the problem is, is then it's sort of like, well, um, have you overgeneralized this skill, right? Where it's sort of like, maybe if, um, if again, you were in Bosnia, if you were in Afghanistan, or something like that, right? Um, that was a key skill to have, right? But if, say, 
you know, you're going down a side street in Alberta or in Ontario or things like that. Um, is there as much of a risk of an ambush? Is there as much of a risk of um, an IED or something like that? Like that's the problem the- is is turning it off. The uh, the first five years when I got um, after my tour, it was ridiculous. I'd be taking the bus uh, to college every day to and from, and uh, every fighting age man on the bus, I killed three or four times in three or four different ways in my mind. Um, because I'm running scenarios. What if scenarios? Okay, if this person does this, then what are my weapons of opportunity? And if it's a group that uh, comes at me, which one do I take out first, and why? And um, and and what would you know? And, and what are my uh, exit points? And and who are my allies? And you know, who do I think uh, would 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 back me up? And and so I'm just assessing everybody. And and that's something people don't like to talk about. They just say, yeah, 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 hypervigilance. But they don't say what that means. What it means is that I'm killing people in my mind constantly because it's running a scenario. You know, I'm running it this way, then I'm running that way. Who's a threat? Who's a threat? Who's a threat? Who's a threat? And how do I deal with that threat? Where do I dive? Um, uh, is that planter uh, thick enough? Would that stop a bullet? Yep, that would that that'd do it. Uh, this coffee cup's pretty good. Oh, this sugar dispenser, that's got some weight to it. I can smash a skull with that. And it just doesn't freaking turn off. And I suffered from that. And it is suffering because uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't stop. You're in combat all the time because your amygdala is uh, stuck on full throttle and you can't turn it off. Taxing. Yeah. Oh, it's horrific. And then uh, you go to sleep and the nightmares are the same. You're still mm-hmm. in that mode and it doesn't flip and stop. And, um, but people don't like talking about it because it's embarrassing. And you sound like a freaking crazy people. What do you mean you kill people in your mind all the time? Yes, I do. <laughs> and uh, much less now. Uh, but, uh, but for five years, years it was just constant and that's how um a lot of people are you don't have to have been in a combat zone for that as well any any traumatic event that causes ptsd uh, sexual assault all kinds of, can, yeah. can can get that amygdala to be stuck on full throttle all the damn time mm-hmm. and um victims of uh, of rape are doing the same thing in their mind but uh, they don't want to say it because then you sound like a dangerous crazy person it's like, well, I'm not actually going to do it. I'm just ready to do it. <laughs> you know, well, and I think that's that's key again. Like what I found, at least again, especially say in the in the the clinical environment, or again, even just talking with people, is again contextualizing it, right? Where you know, sometimes again, one of the most common things people will tell me when they when they sit down in session with me is like, well, you know, I. I I swear I'm not crazy, but everybody thinks I'm crazy. And I, I feel like I'm crazy. I'm like, well, no, you're not, you're not, you're not crazy. You're just really suited for, for an environment. Right. And it, that, that's just been, um, um, overgeneralized now. Right. And, you know, we're, we're going to work on this, uh, together, but no, you're, you're, you're not, you're not crazy. You have a skill that, that kept you alive, right. In, in one environment, but now, we're in another environment right now. And it's interesting. You actually mentioned the, the amygdala interesting with, with the amygdala. I mean, there's, there's not really any part of the brain that just does this and, and nothing else. But, but one interesting thing about the amygdala is the amygdala is um, associated with, um, with fear. What else is it associated with anger? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting because oftentimes again, when I'm, when I'm teaching anger management, 
I'm telling people um, anger is a secondary emotion, right? Um, anger has to be um, provoked by something, usually about, say, fear or sadness, right? So if we're in a state of fear, again, you know, when we, when we see somebody, say, flipping out um, on the bus, like you were mentioning there, right? Um, and we're saying, oh, that person's pissed. That person's probably not pissed. That person's probably terrified, right? And that fear response, right? Because fear is often um, uh, future-orientated. Um, uh, sadness, depression is oftentimes past-focused. Uh, Anger is present. I'm pissed off right now. I'm protecting myself. Well, I would word it as a threat response. Mm-hmm. You know, so perception of threat, uh, but there's uh, the unconscious perceptions of threat and physical threat and also threat on my character or my judgment. Uh, a mm-hmm. friend of mine, I've had a couple of people say this, oh, why are people just so stupid on Facebook and they just don't understand? Oh, what are they, blind? Why they can't, they just can't see it. And I try to tell them and they think I'm crazy. And even though I know I'm right. And I get just so anger, angry <laughs> that they don't listen to me. And what I tried to explain is what, because that's a threat response. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're angry because your ego is being threatened. Yeah. Your, your sense of I matter, your sense of, um, of being right about a particular topic. It's your ego that's being threatened. And, and yeah. so you're responding with anger. It's a threat response, but it's not mm-hmm. a real threat. You're absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Right. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's part of, again, navigating every day. Right. That's why, again, like with anger management, it's, it's, it's again, finding, okay, if anger is a secondary emotion, what's, what's that primary emotion? What's driving that anger? Right. Is it, is it sadness? Is it fear? Is it, what, what is it? Right. And like you said, if, if it's the ego, um, Ego, people oftentimes, you know, when you find people who are, say, egotistical or things like that, or, or I, 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 it, seem, it seems like every other person tells me they know somebody who's a, um, a narcissist, right? Yeah, I think um, they get overdiagnosed a little bit. Well, and, and I think the, the problem is, 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 is most people uh, who, who get the, you know, quote-unquote diagnosis of um, uh, narcissism is actually from, say, you know, their, their spouse or their next-door neighbor or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, if you look at, say, something like... Uh, I was, I was accused of being one once by a physician in a social oh. setting. Okay. It's like, oh, well, <laughs> all right. I, I know the story of narcissists and obsessed by his own image in, in, in the pond, but w- whatever. <laughs> but, you know, if, if we look at oftentimes people who are um, egotistical, if we look at mm-hmm. people who, you know, maybe are, are called narcissists or things like that, like you said, you know, on that, on that Facebook page, right? Oftentimes, it's it's not a sense of um, I'm right, I'm superior, I'm better than everybody else, but it's actually I'm inferior, I'm worse than everybody else. Yeah. So I need to make sure um, everybody believes that I'm superior, and maybe I'll even start to believe it. It's an insecurity. It's a manifestation mm-hmm. of, of an insecurity for sure, and that's um, why when somebody's being, I like to say, the root of all assholes is ego. <laughs> and um, instead of being mad at them because they feel that you think that they think that they're inferior to you, to be compassionate because they actually don't think that. They actually think, if they're telling you that they're superior to you, it's because they don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Confident people only lift others up. People that are not confident tear others down so that they can feel like they are above you because they need that feeling 
Mm-hmm. They, they, they need it, uh, it like they need a breath of air because they're, they're mm-hmm. drowning in low self-esteem. Yeah. So to have empathy for them, it's tough when they're just being a dick. But yeah. um, if you're taking it personal, that's your weakness, not theirs. Yeah. You know, well, it, takes, it, right? it, it, it takes such strength to go, okay, mm-hmm. you're a total cocksucker. But <laughs> <laughs> however, that means that you have a story. Yeah, it means that's that, exactly it. It means that you have one hell of a story, and there's a reason that you're acting like this. And I'm not going to hang around, hang out with you because you're a small dose person. But I'm not going to hate you or be angry with you. I'm going to have empathy for you because you have a story. There's no way you don't have a story. No, you know, something, everybody has, something, everybody has a story. something happened to you, man, to make you this kind of a dick. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if they're telling you that they're smarter than you, they actually don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's usually the case. Yeah, arrogance mm-hmm. arrogance is uh, always a, a lack of confidence in, mm-hmm. in 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 every way. No, I agree. Richard, I'm going to do an intro for you um, uh, for for this podcast because uh, we haven't got into and I and I I skipped that you served yourself. I mean, we kind of alluded to it, but you are also a veteran. Uh, uh, yes. you, you were a combat engineer, the one trade where all the all of us infantry guys, you're the only ones we don't make fun of. <laughs> you and uh, we'll make fun of absolutely everybody else, but uh, uh, but not a combat engineer because uh, you got 10 pound balls. It's like you have to let out your pants in the front to fit your balls in there. And for um, the audience that doesn't know what a combat engineer is, uh, these are the guys that clear the roads from landmines, uh, improvise explosives, and um, they keep us alive. And it's an incredibly horrific, dangerous job. I have some face-to-face, um, first-hand ex- bad experiences with landmines. I hit a tripwire once, and, um, and I've got friends that have blown up and not survived because of landmines. So we love these guys. <laughs> these crazy, crazy bomb diffuser folks. You're, you're, you're buck nuts, Richard. Absolutely buck nuts. And now you're a psychotherapist. That makes perfect sense to me. You know what? The, the way I, I see it is um, different mission, same reason to fight, right? Same reason to serve, right? Well, and that's it. And you're serving and thank you for all of your service, uh, both to your country and, uh, to those that, that, uh, that need your help. It's, well, it, it's, it's not easy. I mean, God, I'm going to be having the shutters for a week just cause you, uh, offhand reference to ki- uh, somebody, some kid being chained to a radiator for a week. Cause I know that comes from a real story and, um, uh, to put yourself in a position where you're helping people like that means that you have to hear these stories all the time. And that's, uh, that's tough. That's a sacrifice in itself. So thank you for everything that you do, Richard. You are, you are a star brother. Oh, thank you, Mark. Cause the same thing too, uh, what you're doing, you're helping people all the time with these, uh, with these podcasts and everything you do, uh, that, that peer support, right? Peer support, having that community that comprises, I think the, the potential for recovery. None of us recover in, in isolation. So, Mark, we're we're all a team here, right? So I can't I can't help people uh, by myself. Um, I need I need a lot of support from from other people like yourself as well, right? Well, it's all about recovering out loud, so that others have the courage to step forward and ask for help themselves. 
Absolutely. Oh, I got to write that one down. I just came up with that. That was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Richard. Stay on the line. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the invite, Mark. I really appreciate it. All right. You are listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help or PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to trauma recovery is clear.